And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. When we look at our life again in the past week, we realize that we have not kept all of this perfectly. And yet, for those who repent and confess their sin, we can be sure that God does forgive us. Their assurance of this pardon comes from Psalm 103, verses 8 to 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Let's now sing a song of confession. Our reading of scripture this morning comes from Joshua 18, verse 1 to 10. Joshua 18 can be found on page 244 of the Pew Bible. Our text is Psalm 16, and in Psalm 16 there's a line where David sings, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And when we, when we read that, when we hear chosen portion and cup, where our mind jumps straight to a meal, like a chosen, chosen piece of meat and a cup of drink. But that word portion in the Old Testament is actually used more often with regard to the land, someone's inheritance. And that usage of this word comes out in Joshua 18. 
So that's why we're opening to Joshua 18 this morning, and we'll read the first 10 verses. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I'll send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to see me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me, and I'll cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I'll cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land, and wrote in a book a description of it by the towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua portioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. Let's read our text for this morning. Psalm 16. And Psalm 16 can be found on page 575 of the Pew Bible. Psalm 16, a mictam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I'll not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night or so, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. 
My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And after the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing Psalm 16, verse 1, 3, and 5. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder how many of us here can remember being a child and walking with our dad, walking with our dad through the forest or along a path and hearing something or seeing something scary and running and taking hold of dad's hand. For some of us here, it's been a long time since that has happened. Others of us really don't have to remember that far back at all. But it's, it's this picture of a child who is scared, running and taking hold of their dad's hand, that really captures Psalm 16. That picture of a child walking with their father and feeling safe, feeling confident, feeling secure because they have their dad and their dad has a hold of them. Walking with God gives security and joy. Those words, they come out of verse 9 of Psalm 16. Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, I am filled with joy, and my flesh also dwells secure. And so that's going to be the theme through which we look at Psalm 16 together this morning. Security and satisfaction, or Security and joy, that is the life walking with God, or sorrow, the life without God. So security and satisfaction, or sorrow. David begins this psalm crying out to God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David's in this situation where he needs God to help him. He needs God to protect him. And now, when David is singing a psalm where he's crying out for protection, he usually tells us or gives us some indication of what he needs protection from. If you have your Bibles open, you can just flick one page over through to Psalm 17. Here in Psalm 17, David starts in a very similar way. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. He's in a situation where he needs God to help him. Then as we read through the psalm, we come through to verse 9. And in verse 9, David tells us what he needs deliverance from. From the wicked who do me violence. We know exactly what's happening to David here. My deadly enemies surround me. And yet, in verse 16, I mean, in Psalm 16, 
David gives us absolutely no indication of what he needs to find refuge from. And that's because the focus of this psalm is not on what David's running away from, what David's finding refuge from, but rather David's attention is fixed entirely on who he runs to. His attention in this entire psalm is fixed on God. It's like that child. There's something dangerous. There's something scary. There's something that makes him run to his father. But when he's got his father's hand, he just looks at dad and he feels safe. He feels confident. He's at peace. Whatever it was that he was afraid of doesn't bother him anymore because his focus is fixed on God. That already tells us something this morning of where our focus should be in times of trouble. Our eyes should just rest on God and stay there. And in this place of refuge, David makes this confession to God. He says, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We have to understand what David's saying in verse 2. Firstly, because it sets the paradigm for the entire psalm. What David confesses here is pulled out through the rest of Psalm 16. But also, because when he makes this confession, he's positioning himself with the saints of the land, with God's people, with us. This comes out in verse 3 and 4. In these verses, he says, Lord, I delight in the saints. They are the excellent ones. When David makes the confession of this psalm, he's saying, he's saying, I'm one of them. I'm with the saints in the lands. I'm not like those who run after another God. Their sorrows will multiply. But me, I am one of the saints. And so as God's people, Psalm 16 is a confession that we are also making. It's a confession that we too should be able to make. And so what is David saying in verse 2? I have no good apart from you. And David could be saying one of two things here. The first thing that he could be saying is that he has no good thing apart from what God gives him. This is how the NIV translates this verse, also the New Living Translation, which reads, Every good thing that I have comes from you. And so, picture David here, he's looking at his wife, he's looking at his kids, he's looking at his house, he's looking at everything that he has, and he says, Lord God, all of this, it comes from you. I have, I have no good apart from what you give me. That's a fairly simple confession, and I think it's a confession that each and every one of us can quite easily make. But alternatively, David could be saying in this verse that he has God, and then he has everything else. And he says that God alone, God alone is the only good thing in his life. 
Then he'll be making a confession somewhat similar to what we hear in Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. It's a harder confession to make. The only good thing, the only thing that I desire is you, O God. Forget about everything else. As long as I have you, you alone are good. And the hard thing is, is that David's drawn each and every one of us in here as well. Forget about snowmobiles, forget about camping, about swimming pools, about lattes, everything. Just as long as I have God, my heart is content. And yet this is exactly the confession that David is making here as verse 5 and verse 6 make clear. In verse 5 and verse 6, David is looking at his inheritance, he's looking at his land. Verse 5 makes that clear. It says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In the Old Testament, the cup is a picture of the blessings that God has given his people. And the specific blessing that David is looking at is his inheritance, his portion. We read about that together in Judges or Joshua 18. When the Israelites came into the land of Canaan and the land was divided, we read that Joshua cast lots for them before the Lord and there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. And the idea behind that is that the entire land of Canaan was God's land and God chose to give each Israelite a specific piece of land for themselves. So this piece of land is yours, this one's yours, this one's yours. That was the Israelites' portion. That was their inheritance. And for the Israelites, this was their most important possession. It was their greatest possession. And this is what David is looking at in verse 5 and 6. And as he looks at this, this inheritance, this portion that he's received from God... He sees it's a chosen portion. He looks at his fences, his boundary lines, and he says, these lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and he sums this all up. I have a beautiful inheritance. It's a picture of all the blessings, all the gifts that God has given to David. But then... David does something interesting and he he turns this all around. In verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. We just read Joshua 18 together, and that should make us pause. Because in Joshua 18, we read in verse 7. Joshua saying, The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. Rather than receiving a gift of land from God, the Levites received close fellowship with God himself. 
It was the priesthood that they received as their portion. It was this interceding for God on behalf of the people, this close communion that they had with God was what they received. And now here, in Psalm 16, David is making this similar confession. He's saying, the Lord is my portion. What David is doing is he's positioning himself with the Levites. He's saying, God, I've received all these gifts from you. I've received all these good gifts. You have blessed me with so much, but, but Lord, you are my portion. You are my heritage. You alone are the one that I desire. All of the stuff that you have given me, it doesn't matter. I don't care about it. I have you as my portion. Look at the words that he uses to describe God. He describes God as a chosen portion, literally a portion of portions. The very best thing that he could have is God. He says, the lions, they've fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a, a beautiful inheritance. In summary, David looks at God and he says, if I have God, it's not, it's not as though I've got enough to get by. It's not as though I can sort of make it through this life. But if I have God as my father, if I have God, then my heart is satisfied. There's nothing on earth that I desire but you. And now we can understand why David's pulled us into this. Because David was someone who could stand and he could look at his physical inheritance. He could look at what God had given him and he knew that he was blessed. God had given him so much. He could stand on his back porch. He could look out at those white fences and say, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And there are some of us here who can make that confession as well. God has blessed us abundantly. But there are others of us who when we look at what God has given us in this life, there are others of us who are not in pleasant places. And what David is reminding of us, he's reminding us to do here is to look beyond these circumstances of life, to look beyond the gifts that God has given us and instead just focus on the giver. David's telling us something here of the source of security and the source of joy, the source of security and the source of satisfaction. And that is that these cannot be found in possessions, but in a person. And that person is God. Right now, David is in danger. David needs to take refuge in God. David is in danger of losing everything he has. And yet that doesn't bother him at all. Because he has his father. He's taken hold of his father. The gifts don't matter. He's got the giver. And in this difficult situation, this is all that David needs. It's all that David needs for two reasons. 
And the first reason is that being with God gives satisfaction. Or being with God gives joy. It's a little bit like a child who's with his dad. When the kid's with their dad, they're just happy. I think every one of us who has children knows that. You come home from work and your kids just run to the front door just to be with you and the baby's trying to jump out of dad's or mum's arms just to get to dad. Being with your father gives joy. And it's the exact same thing with our heavenly father. Augustine, one of the church fathers, says that there's a God-sized hole in each of our hearts. There's a longing that we have just to be with God, just to be in his presence. And David points to this in verse 11 of Psalm 16. He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Just being with God and knowing that his face is shining down on you in love gives joy. But having God doesn't only give joy, brothers and sisters, it also brings security. When we have God, we are secure. We are kept safe. And that is a security that lasts from now all the way through to eternity. And David brings this out as well in the psalm. In verse 7 he says, I'll bless the Lord who gives me counsel. It's God who guides us. It's God who leads us. Verse 8. So I've set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. God is not only leading us through life, but he is also our refuge as he leads us. He is with us. He is keeping us safe and we shall not be shaken. And this is a security that even death can't remove from us. In verse 10, David looks, he looks ahead to death, to seeing Sheol. And he says, no, Lord, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. Death is not going to be the end of that guidance and that safety and that joy that we find with God. But it's something that's going to go through death and into the life beyond. Verse 11, where we be in God's presence where there is fullness of joy. David knows that when he finds his refuge in God, it's then that he is secure. And it's then that his heart is satisfied. Really, to David, it was his relationship with God that meant everything. And it was David's confession. And as we approach Easter, we should also reflect on how this was Christ's confession. Because when we understand how much Christ's relationship with his Father and his love for his father meant to him, we understand just how much he gave up for us. So we see that Jesus, he delighted in God. 
He delighted in doing the will of his Father. We read this in John 6, verse 38, where he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He delighted to do the will of his heavenly Father. And to do the Father's will, he literally gave up everything that he had. Philippians 2, verse 7, we read that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When he came down to earth, Jesus literally gave up everything for God and for God's will. But even more than that, when he was on the cross, he gave up that precious fellowship that he had with the Father. He gave up that fellowship with God that he held so dear. Just think of his pain as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gave up that which he held so dear. Why? So that we might never more be forsaken. So that in our pain, in the difficulties of our life, in the trials of life, like David, we can run to the Father and we can take hold of him and we can take hold of his hand and we can find our refuge in him. So we see that Christ had this, had this deep joy, this deep joy in being the Son of the Father, and He gave that up so that we can share in that joy and in that delight. But Christ also had a complete confidence. He had a complete trust in His Father. In Acts 2, Peter quotes this psalm. This is at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the Jews come running to the Christians who are gathered there and they're wondering what's going on and Peter's telling them that this is Pentecost. This is Jesus sending out the Holy Spirit. And in part of that sermon to the people, he points out that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he quotes this psalm, Psalm 16, to show that Jesus had to rise from the dead. He says, God raised him, that's Jesus, up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes, he quotes verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter says, Jesus had to rise from the dead because the Father had promised that he would raise him up. And when Jesus was on the cross, we find that he had this very same confidence in his Father as he was faced with death. When Jesus was faced with that great enemy of death, he had this confidence and this trust in his Father that his Father would raise him again. That his father would see him through this, this valley. Comes out in those last words he spoke on the cross. 
where he said, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. Words of trust. Words of confidence. He trusted that God would not abandon his soul to Sheol. He trusted that he would not see corruption. And so he, he handed his spirit to the Father, resting in him. And it wasn't a misplaced trust. Because three days later, as Peter says, God raised him up, losing the pangs of death. And it's this, it's this same trust and the same confidence that Jesus had in God, that Jesus had in the Father, that we can also now have in God. Knowing that no matter what enemy we're facing, no matter what is on our life, no matter what difficulty is ahead, God is our Father who will not abandon us, not in this life, not in death. And he will see us through to the life to come when we can enjoy fellowship with him forever. One thing that I find fascinating in this psalm is that while David, he doesn't, he doesn't look at what he's finding refuge from. He doesn't look at what he's scared of. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even bring that up. His focus is entirely on who he's finding his refuge in, on his God. Yet, he still takes a glance at false gods at other gods to whom other people are running to. It's as though he's found refuge with his father. He's taken hold of his father's hand and, and he glances around and he, and he looks at where else people have tried to find refuge, where else people have tried to find security, where else they've tried to find satisfaction. In verse 4, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Here's David. He's, he's found his refuge in his God. And he's found satisfaction and he's found security. And he's telling us, if you're looking anywhere else, you'll only find sorrow. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Our text gives us a, a very easy definition of an idol, a false god. It's simply something that you chase after, something that you run after for satisfaction or security. Something that you trust will keep you safe, that you trust will give you joy. And for us in the church, for us who, who like David, has, have taken hold of God, we're not immune to this running after false gods. We too can very easily serve idols. And that happens when we turn away from the giver and instead we focus on the gifts that he has given us. We find our refuge in, in who God is, but we say at the same time that we're looking to you, we also need this and, and that 
to feel secure. Our confession no longer is the confession that having God is enough and that with God we are satisfied. Rather than being that child who's looking up to his father, who's looking at his father's face and being satisfied in that, we're looking to other things to satisfy our hearts. And David says that if that is you, all that you will be left with is sorrow. And we have to be clear on what David is saying here. He's not saying that we can't find joy in other things. He's not saying that we can't find joy in the gifts that God has given. But he's saying that the foundation of our joy, the foundation of our security, has to be our relationship with God. And that we can never leave this foundation to find joy or security somewhere else. Our confession is is similar to the confession of Paul, which he makes to the Philippians in Philippians 3 verse 8, where he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's this confession that if we are just left with God, and left with the knowledge that his face is shining upon us, if the gifts that he gives us aren't good, or if he takes those good gifts that he has given us away from us, that we're still satisfied. If we are to picture that difference between running after false gods or finding our refuge in our Father, that contrast can be captured by this picture of a child, a child taking hold of their father's hand or a child running after balloons. You know, we found these balloons at the dollar store. You can blow them up to about a meter. Now, little guy, he, he loves chasing them. He loves running after these balloons. They just give him so much joy. But that's what we are like when we chase after the gifts that God gives rather than the giver himself. We're like children running after these balloons that are blowing in the wind, trying to find our heart's satisfaction in them, trying to locate our security in them. But brothers and sisters, you know what happens to balloons. Balloons pop. You're left with nothing. Or you get to that point in life where a balloon loses its charm. You realize that a balloon is simply nothing but air. And so again, you are left with nothing. But there is something. There is something much more sorrowful about chasing after false gods. And that is, when you run after them, you are running further and further, and further, and further away from your Father. And that is what is so sorrowful. That you'll be standing there one day, far away from God, realizing that that pornography addiction didn't provide you with any joy. That your friends, that your family, that your spouse, they can't satisfy your heart. That your job gave no security. But today our Father, He calls us. 
He calls us to himself and he says, come, come, take my hand. Come, walk with me. And when you're holding on to my hand, you will be safe. I will lead you down the path of life. Come to me. Find joy in knowing that I am yours and you are mine. And enjoy that lasting joy from now. Come. Taste that security that nothing can take away. Amen.